Welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm here with my co-host, Reagan Duffy. Today, we are joined by special guest, Katie Stewart. We feel so lucky to be able to welcome Katie to the show today, since she is the editor of the Owl's Nest Classics edition of Anne of Green Gables, annotated for teen and middle grade readers. Welcome, Katie. I'm so glad to be here. We are so excited to have you here. We connected with Katie via Instagram when we shared how much we love her edition of Anne, and we are thrilled to be talking to you in person. So Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of books. Okay, well, my professional experience is in creative writing, nonfiction, sales copy, and marketing in the not-for-profit world, and I got a ton of experience editing and copy editing, doing that. But my educational background is mainly in in the communications world. I got my master's degree in communications from Annenberg, which um, I think is out in your neck of the woods, thinking that I would work in the film industry. That didn't work out. It was like right at the height of the Great Recession. And then, so I moved home. I've been a lifelong reader. So when I finished grad school and I moved home and I got married and I was, I started to have babies, something inside me needed a creative outlet. So I began to review books all over the internet. I started reviewing books first on YouTube, and then I eventually started an Instagram account in the book world. It's called BookTube and Bookstagram. (laughs) And then in the last couple of years with one of my best friends, we started a publishing house, which has sort of hindered my ability to keep up in those places. But that experience really helped me to understand the promotional side of the book industry. And I made a lot of connections with publishers that way. That's how I got into the book world. It's sort of varied and miscellaneous, but I just love to read books too. So yeah. It's right? kind of the book. And that's like all come together in this truly sort of globally bookish experience, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of yeah. the book dream. I think anybody yes. who's a big reader and loves books wants to figure out how, how do I make a living doing the thing I love the most? Okay. So I remember when I was done with college, I was an English major. I literally Googled, what do bookish people do for work? (laughs) You know, I wish that I had done that. I really do. I feel like I was so lost. I was also an English major after undergrad. I was so lost. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I didn't use any of the resources at my undergrad to assess, you know, what my strengths were. And I wish that I had had someone sit me down and be like, okay, if you really want to do something with books, these are the different positions that you should explore. And um, this is what is required to, (laughs) to pursue those things. I think what happens is, and maybe this experience isn't universal, but this is what happened with me. It seemed like the only thing that my professors knew to do with an English degree was either to go on to get a graduate degree in English literature and become an English literature professor like they did or go to law school (laughs) so I went to law school (laughs) I also heard that and I was like I don't want to be a professor and I don't want to be a lawyer I'm far I'm far too non-confrontational to be to ever even consider being a lawyer honestly Um, same Thankfully, a liberal arts education is is pretty broad, so you can do a lot with it. But yeah, I've sort of like bumped along and done a lot for free. Like a lot of my book reviewing stuff, I don't get paid for that. I just do it because I love it and I love to read books and I love to talk about books and I'll do it with anyone anywhere. And now you're into publishing. Right. 
So Reagan and I have this theory that women who grew up reading Anne of Green Gables always end up being delightfully bookish kindred spirits. Fully support that. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you and your co-founder at Owl's Nest, Karen Hoyle, also met and bonded over a shared love of books. Yes, we did. And we've known each other since we were very wee. We've known each other since we were like four years old. Wait, really? Tell us a story. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, probably even younger than that, really. Her family lived in Madison and our parents were friends. We played together a lot when we were teeny tiny. And then her family ended up moving away and kind of bouncing all over the Midwest. But both of our families continued over the course of 25 years going to the same camp, the same family camp. So every summer for a week, we would see each other at a family camp. We knew each other apart from books, but we do have a shared love of literature and we always have. And just sort of pop culture, movies, storytelling in general we would meet to go to the movies together and we she we were recalling that we went to see Pride and Prejudice together the 2004 oh, nightly um best one the best I mean I love both of them Colin Firth oh no I, I love both of them too but I love the Kira Knightley version love. the Kira Knightley version is like that's what I want to go to sleep to like that's yes. what I want to have on in the background at all times no completely if that could just be like the soundtrack to my sort of daily life yes please <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> So yes, Karen and I have known each other forever. um, And probably one of the reasons that we've maintained such a close friendship is for sure our shared love of books and reading and storytelling. Well, as Reagan and I can personally attest, talking about books with your best friends is one of the most fun things you can do. Agreed. (laughs) For sure. You never run out of things to talk about. No. That's the best part, right? Because there's always another book. Exactly. There's always more to share. Well, we always like to start our show with a quote of the episode. So Katie, what is your favorite quote from Anne of Green Gables? Hey, it's so, so hard for me, for me to pick just one quote that I love. But the quote that I landed on is one that I just love and I come back to often. And that's, dear old world, you are very lovely and I'm glad to be alive in you. That's a favorite quote. I'm not going to say my favorite quote of all time, but it is a favorite quote in Anne. And I love it because there's something about knowing that this is Anne's mindset when she arguably has so much to feel bitter about. She has a really traumatic childhood that is a little bit glossed over, but you know that it exists in the book. Even though she is histrionic and can be in the depths of despair. She is ultimately a pretty optimistic kid and is thankful to be alive in the world. And I feel like that is really inspirational. That's one of my favorite quotes as well, for that same reason. Anne's ability to appreciate how beautiful the world is, even when she's sad, is always inspiring to me. Yeah. So we're going to get into our story club today. And our story club today is our interview with Katie. Helly. I can't believe that we are here on our 18th episode of this podcast. I know. (laughs) We started this podcast as a way to celebrate our love for a book that has been formative for both of us. And along the way, we discovered how much there was really to talk about. Doing this podcast has deepened my love for this classic book. Delving into the characters and the history and the themes has really given me such a renewed appreciation for why Anne is one of the most enduring heroines of children's literature. I've loved getting to revel in the descriptive passages and really explore Anne's growth over the course of the book. 
Kelly, has anything changed for you over the last 18 episodes about the way you think about Anne or your experience with the book? Well, hmm. Yes and no, right? I mean, rereading Anne of Green Gables with this more like critical focus has, for me, been such a pleasure. Because of course, in my many previous reads, like over the course of my life, I was always just reading this for pleasure, right? We always talk about how this book is a comfort read for both of us. And that's so wonderful. But reading the book with this level of like attention to detail and this level of engagement really enhanced my experience and appreciation. So much of what we've talked about, I was able to notice so much more of what Maud was doing as a matter of craft with this book, like the themes she was exploring and how this book really reflected her worldview and personal philosophy. I think one of the things I noticed about this, doing this deep dive, is that in many ways, Anne of Green Gables is a love letter to creativity, imagination, community, and kindness. And I think I could pick out those through lines much more clearly with this sort of in-depth read. So Katie, what drew you to Anne of Green Gables as a reader initially? Like the first time you read it as a kid? I first read Anne of Green Gables when I was probably about Anne Shirley's age at the beginning of the book. I was probably about 11 or 12. And it was, it was social contagion for me. It was social <laughs> pressure that led me to it. One of my best friends had read and loved Anne. She convinced the rest of our friend group to read the book. So, Amazing. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I, I'm so grateful to her because I wouldn't have been introduced to Anne without Marin. I love the book evangelists in our life. Thank goodness for them. Did you watch the, the 1985 miniseries at all growing up? I did, but it wasn't until after I read the books. I was not, I was not oh. familiar. Yeah, I was not you read familiar. The book first. I read the book first. I was not familiar with the story of Anne of Green Gables at all. Like I was blind wow. to it. Yeah. What do you love about Anne as a character or about the book itself? I have always loved Anne's cheerful optimism. And I really have always related to Anne's optimism. I'm a very glass half full optimistic person. And so I really connected with Anne on that level. And also her imagination. I was really imaginative as a kid. And her penchant for scrapes. Those, those things I always loved. Those things always drew me to her when I was a kid. But as an adult, when I think about the book as a whole, I'm most drawn to Matthew and Marilla and how Anne changes them over the course of the book, particularly Marilla, right? Yeah. Like Matthew, who doesn't love Matthew? He is wonderful. And the moment that Anne and Matthew meet, they have a very special bond. So in some ways, it's really Marilla who I love the most watching her transformation is the most beautiful thing to witness as a reader she goes from being the pinnacle of staunch victorian propriety unable or unwilling to show affection and then she turns into a soft loving mother figure who's deeply dependent on anne and not necessarily for anything that anne can physically give her although at the end of the book that is true she does become dependent on anne because she's losing her eyesight but even more so she becomes dependent on anne for the love that has changed changed Marilla's life. And I, I also love the book just because Ellen Montgomery, she's such a beautiful writer and her descriptions of the physical world and Prince Edward Island have brought me to tears sometimes reading them. They are so beautiful. And I'm not someone who gravitates towards really flowery descriptions of nature, but there's something about the way that Ellen Montgomery can turn a phrase that really captures me. I think both of us feel very much that same way about Marilla and really appreciating her as a character on a much deeper level through reading the book so closely for this podcast. 
Yeah. I think as you get older, Marilla, yes. It, with any beloved story that you read that you read as a child and then you read as an adult, I think your perspective shifts just it's just part of growing up, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you're a kid, you relate to Anne, but when you grow up and you're reading the story, you begin to see the depth of some of the adult characters and I love that Ella Montgomery makes the adult characters people that you want to know and read about. She doesn't dismiss them. Yeah, the adult characters in Anne of Green Gables, it's not like a Peanuts cartoon where the adults are just sort of the like wah-wah-wah voices, right? (laughs) Like they really are fully fleshed out people who are so important in Anne's life. And then with Marilla particularly are on such an interesting journey. One of the things that Reagan and I talked about a little bit in a previous episode is that Maud gives Anne all of these examples for what kind of woman she can be when she grows up. She can be a traditional wife and mother and like pillar of the community like Mrs. Lind. She can be a young unmarried woman making her way in the world like Miss Stacy. Mm -hmm. She can be an older woman who is unmarried and still met with success like Aunt Josephine, you Mm -hmm. know, or she can be like a Marilla come to motherhood in a non-traditional way. I mean, it's just like so many different kinds of women that she could be. And that is not something that you ever see in Victorian literature. And then all of us had all of those examples. Yes. You know, Maud was a trailblazer in so many ways. And mm-hmm. I think she really focused in all of her books on the lives of women and girls in her stories in ways that were so important for that time because it was so unusual all the different realities for women then and now. Yeah, I love that. I know. And just to speak to Marilla, particularly, my appreciation of Marilla has grown up so much more now that I'm reading this book as an adult Mm -hmm. and seeing her go from someone who was very happy to live her life in one specific lane to embracing this maternal family oriented side of her. Just Mm -hmm. wonderful. Yes. So I quite enjoy reading annotated classics generally. And when I read or reread an older book, I often will look for an annotated edition if one is available. I think that for me, I want to know all the insider info. If the book says that something costs pence and shillings, I need to know how much money that is. (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) So what drew you to Anne of Green Gables as an annotation project? So when Karen and I, Karen is my best friend, business partner. And when we started Owl's Nest Publishers, we knew we wanted to include a line of classics for children. We believe the classics are still important and relevant books to read today. And it aligned with our vision at Owl's Nest to put classics into the hands of kids. But we wanted to make sure that our Owl's Nest classics had added value and that we weren't just putting another edition into the world with our own cover slapped on it. That's a dime a dozen. And what could we do that would make our classics stand out to be something that would be of added value into the world? So that was our reason for wanting to do these classics, making these annotated classics. But the reason we chose Anne as our first book was was really as simple as it's among my favorite books of all time. And I always have a lot to say about it. And then also from just a practical standpoint, I had the space to do the research and edit the book. Okay, so you talk about how you wanted to do something a little bit more special than just put a unique cover on an existing classic and you wanted to add value into the world. What do you see as the benefits and the value of an annotated edition of a classic book specifically for middle grade and teen readers? Yeah, I think especially when you're trying to encourage kids to read classics, it can sometimes be a hard sell 
because of the language or just the unfamiliarity. It's intimidating. A lot of times they're longer than books written for kids and teens today. I mean, there's so many reasons why classics would be intimidating. But even though people are always people and kids are always kids, which makes the themes in the classics universal, language and culture are living, changing things. And that makes picking up a classic intimidating for kids and adults. I mean, intimidating for anyone. So the benefit of an annotated book is that it demystifies some of those challenging aspects of a classic, either defining archaic or unusual words, or putting into context cultural or historical references that a contemporary of the book would have understood immediately, but not a modern reader. I mean, it's true for adults and kids, but I think it's particularly true for kids that those things can be really intimidating, partly because there's still a lot of times still learning words, learning language themselves, learning how to be a fluent reader. And that makes classics even more challenging. Right. And they don't yet have as much context for the time period the book might be written in as an older person who has just had more experience, whether through school or just movies or learning about history. And I have to say that with this edition, I really think you knocked it out of the park. My 10-year-old daughter, Alice, read this edition. This was her introduction to Anne. I know it really helped her stay engaged when words and concepts were unfamiliar to her. It's not so much that Anne is outside of her reading level on its own, but it's not written in a familiar and modern way that she's used to. The pacing is different. The plotting is different. The vocabulary is different. And she just doesn't have that same context for the time that Anne is living in. But by reading this annotated version, she really, she couldn't put it down when she started. And she loved some of the questions that you ask (laughs) of the readers between sections. And she'd bring it to me and be like, what do you think about this, mom? (laughs) Oh, I love that it sparked discussion. That's perfect. Yes. So tell us a little bit about the work of annotating Anne. I mean, you told us a little bit about what drew you to this book particularly. How do you want to enhance the book by annotating it? With our classics, our aim with Anne and in the future is really to introduce a new generation to classic literature. It's its universal themes, its historical context, and how a modern adolescent can relate to the work, or on the other hand, might grapple with some of those things in classic literature that, that are unsavory, because that often is the case as well. There's a lot of racism and stuff in a lot of different classic literature. Does that mean yes. we shouldn't read it? No, but we need to be able to grapple with it. Yeah, point it out where it exists. Yes, point it out where where it exists and talk about it. It's it's just a jumping off point to get kids to another way to learn about history and where we've come from, where we are today, where we hope to go. I mean, that's another part of why reading classics is, is so important, I think. And then to make the work itself more accessible. So I did a lot of just really close reading of the book and pulling out those things from Anne of Green Gables and working through the book to find places that might be challenging or interesting for readers to know more about. What kind of research did you do to annotate Anne? What in your background or education was the most useful for you in this work? So some of my research was just general knowledge that I've gained over the course of my life. I was lucky enough to go to a liberal arts college for undergrad. That was such a blessing for me because I really got a solid, well-rounded education that has served me very well. I read a lot of foundational classic literature and I have some basic historical knowledge. So that was really helpful in reading the book. Although even then, when I was putting together Anne of Green Gables, I usually tried to find a reference for everything, even if I already knew it, just (laughs) to confirm. Sometimes though, it, it was a challenge to research 
the book. So I remember at the beginning of the book, there's a particular type of quilt that's referenced that Mrs. Lind is knitting. It was called a cotton warp quilt. And I remember coming across that and being like, what is a cotton warp quilt? What is that? And I searched far and wide to find a reference for what exactly it was. And apart from its explanation in another annotated edition of Anne of Green Gables, all I could find were online knitting forums (laughs) that themselves (laughs) referenced Anne of Green Gables. Which came first, the cotton warp quilt or Anne of Green Gables? I know. I mean, part of me, when when I came across that, I was like, well, wow, was this like a very specific kind of quilt that was known only among a local? I mean, I had no idea. I did figure it out. It is part, it is in the annotation, but it's basically a knit quilt, like a special, special particular type of knit quilt. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So in researching the book, it was a lot of internet searches for quality sources, not like Wikipedia, but like quality sources that confirmed my knowledge. A few years ago, I read the middle grade biography of Ellen Montgomery. Have you read that? No, but now it's on my list. It's called House of Dreams and it's by Liz Rosenberg. Okay. That sounds like a must read. You must read it. I sobbed. It is incredible. Like it is just the most beautiful biography of Ella Montgomery. And that also really inspired me about how I wrote about Maud and how I would talk about this story to younger readers specifically. I finished that book at like one o'clock in the morning and I literally woke my husband up (laughs) <laughs> to talk to him about it and he's like I literally don't care let me go back to sleep <laughs> oh gosh so Katie Anne of Green Gables has been studied so widely there are you know many other annotated editions one of the ones that I relied on really heavily when working on this podcast was the Norton Critical Edition what were you doing with the Owl's Nest edition of Anne of Green Gables that was different from what's already out there I would say the biggest difference between our Anne and other annotated editions of Anne is that ours is really geared towards adolescent readers. And as far as I know, there's not another annotated edition of Anne of Green Gables like that that's like specifically for young readers. I've done searches. I really don't think there is. I could be wrong. You never know. I did reference a couple annotated editions of Anne when I was researching my edition, but as I combed through Anne, I was looking specifically for things that would be hangups or interesting to younger readers, not adults. And also when I gave explanations, they all needed to be palatable for a young audience. So unlike a lot of other annotated editions of Anne, I mean, I like reading them and I think they're interesting and you do too. They're not always very engaging. They're very informational, right? But they're Mm -hmm. not always very conversational. And so my edition really speaks to the reader, or at least I hope it does. It invites them in and engages Mm -hmm. with them rather than just regurgitating facts. And I think that also really makes it stand apart. I even share anecdotes from my own life in order to connect with the reader. So my hope is that it's equally engaging and profound for adults too, because like all great children's literature, it should be enjoyed by children and adults alike. But like with all children's literature, the intended audience is children. And I'm just going to repeat myself and say that what I was saying before is basically a bastardization of a C.S. Lewis quote, which is a children's book that can only be enjoyed by children is not a good children's book in the slightest. I heartily agree with that sentiment from you and C.S. Lewis. Yes. (laughs) 
Me too. And I think there is something about that, I think, is part of what makes a children's book enduring is does it stand up when you read it as an adult? Mm-hmm. Certainly I can have that experience now when I go back and I read books I loved as a kid. As a kid, I was a pretty uncritical reader, right? Mm-hmm in a lot of ways in terms of writing and things like that. And there's some books you go back and read and you're like, oh God, this is terrible. Uh, (laughs) Or the experience of, and I don't know if you have this experience, Katie, like reading out loud to my daughter, Mm -hmm. like some of the books that are written for young kids to read on their own as they start reading them are awful to read out loud. Terrible. There was a few books where I had to tell her, I was like, honey, this is a read on your own book. I cannot read these to you. If I have to read one more Rainbow Fairies book to you, I'm going to (laughs) die. I'm going to (laughs) die. But there are some books that you can read them as an adult and appreciate the language or the musicality or whatever it is. And I think that's what makes some children's books really enduring and some children's books being like, Yes, go ahead and read the 20th Magic Treehouse book. I think that's mm-hmm. wonderful. I'm not going to read it out loud to you. Right. It's like when my my son wants me to sometimes read to him like Diary of a Wimpy Kid and like the there's also Reagan's like the, face. <laughs> like Diaper Baby or something and I'm like, "No, you know what? I will sit down and I'll read Charlotte's Web with you." Mm-hmm. I will read any of Kate D Camillo's books to you. I mean, there's a whole list yeah. of books that I'm like, "I will read this." <laughs> curated list of children's <laughs> books to you, <laughs> but I will not read yeah. Diary of Bumpy Kid. <laughs> so my daughter's 10, but we still read out loud most nights. I don't know how old she'll be when she stops wanting us to do that, but I hope it's still a long time. I hope that you continue to do it even after she pushes against it. If you have never read the book called um, The Read Aloud Handbook by Jim yes. Trillis, that is my favorite parenting book of all time. <laughs> it's not even a parenting book, but it's just like, it tells you the how important it is to read aloud to your kids and like he encourages you to do it through high school like never stop reading aloud so wow. good i hope that that's true but so anyway my husband and i alternate reading a book with her right so i'll pick one and she and i will read the book through and then he'll pick one so we we'll, we kind of take turns these days and i curate the books that she and i are going to read out loud together he lets her pick so he got stuck reading three <laughs> warrior cats books in a row to her i was like that's your own fault man man like i i will bring being like these three books look interesting let's choose one of these <laughs> he's like oh their names are the same <laughs> i was like i don't think that book was meant to be read out loud but good luck no, no. And that's also true. Not all books are meant to be read out loud. Some some books really are read to yourself books. I think sort of the inverse of this conversation are the books that we loved as children. But then when we revisit them ourselves as adults, we're like, oh, dear. I think I tried to read this might have been 10 years or so ago, but I tried to read a handful of like Babysitter's Club books again. Ladies, I loved those books as a kid. I read as many of them as the library would let me check out. My mother stopped buying them, right? Because like (laughs) I would have bankrupted us. (laughs) I must have read one of the early ones, like Christie's Great Idea or one of those. And I was like, oh, this is, this is not very good. (laughs) I read how many books? Hundreds? Yeah. I mean, I have not revisited the Babysitter's Club, so I, I can't speak. You don't have to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just I, let I, it be I, a happy memory. Right, let it stay a memory. Let it stay a little golden childhood memory. 
I think I'd also have the same experience. Like my mom, we would always read R.L. Stein books as a kid too. Goosebumps, yes. Goosebumps and the Fear Street series. That one was my mm-hmm. favorite because it was less monstery. And my mom was always like, "Don't, please, don't read these. These are just." These are garbage books. She would like try to <laughs> help us read more quality <laughs> literature. But my philosophy as a parent is as long as my kids are reading and they're not only reading those books and they're also reading high quality kids lit, then, you know, a little R.L. Stein or Babysitter's Club is fine. It's, you know, they're reading and that's the most important thing. <laughs> exactly. There are definitely different books that are meant for kids to read. And then there's other books for parents to read with their kids. Those yes. are two two different books, right? I had to throw up my hands about Dogman and was like, well, she'll come to the end of them at some point and then she'll have to read something else. <laughs> There's a finite number of Dogman books. <laughs> I mean, they keep For coming now. out. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I feel like I apply that same thing to my current reading, actually. I read lots and lots of fluffy romance novels. That is 100% my comfort read genre. But, you know, for every like handful of fluffy romance novels, I'll pick up something highbrow. You know, I'm, I don't discriminate. I try to do a little bit of high and lowbrow. We all need some cotton candy. You know, yeah. like I, we can't just be eating broccoli all the time. Not, and broccoli can taste great. You know, I love roasted broccoli, but I also want some Skittles, you know? Absolutely. Yes. Broccoli and Skittles. I wanted to go back, Katie, to your point earlier about kind of how your annotations really engage with the reader and try to meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed when I was reading your edition, how your annotations seem to spark a dialogue with the reader. They reference back to each other. You are talking about your own childhood, asking the reader questions, asking them to consider sort of different ways of thinking thinking about the text. Who were you picturing as your reader? And what experience did you want them to have with this book? I'm so glad that you found, like as an adult, you found it engaging too. Oh, I was like genuinely laughing out loud at certain ones. Truly. I love that. It was such a fun read. (laughs) I love that. I'm so glad. I mean, I do tell some pretty funny stories from when I was a kid in there. (laughs) But I was picturing a young reader and probably between 12 and 14, because that's generally when kids pick up Anne of Green Gables for the first time is that age range. So I was imagining someone who's picking up Anne of Green Gables for the first time. So my editor, who happens to be Karen, and I worked really hard to make sure that the language we use in the book wasn't too Annish itself. <laughs> because I know I have a penchant for big words. I use big oh. words a lot in my life. I come from a family. We are all very literary and we use big words and, and I use big words as a kid. So I needed to be more universally accessible. And, and so everything that I wrote had to be accessible for a young audience, but my goal was to make it challenging too. And that's the trick with all children's lit, or at least really good children's lit to kind of tie in what we were just talking about. I think it's making it accessible, making it fun to read without talking down to the reader and still using language that will encourage them to read up. Especially also because I knew and hoped that adults would find it equally enriching and engaging. So my hope is that any reader who picks it up will learn things, but also just have fun reading the book. And hopefully the annotations will only add to and not distract from Montgomery's brilliant book. Because I I think when you are talking about an annotated book, your concern is always, is this going to detract from the story? Are you going to like lose your place? Are you going to have a hard time going back and forth between the story and the annotations? So that was also a a balance. You know, I will say that I think my experience with reading the Owl's Nest Classics edition that you annotated was 
I felt almost that I had the sensation of reading it again as a younger reader Mm -hmm. because your tone was, you know, so clearly directed to someone who's maybe a young teenager or a preteen or something like that. But that I was a younger reader with like a cool older sister or someone like that sitting (laughs) next to me and explaining things as I went, right? Mm -hmm. All the things that like a young kid would have had questions about, the answer was right there in the text written in a really accessible and fun way. I remember one of the annotations and says something like, wild Mm -hmm. horses can drag it out of me. And so I started to talk about in the annotation what it means to be drawn and quartered because that's where that's where that reference comes from and I was like okay how graphic do I get here (laughs) (laughs) and so I had this conversation with Karen because I was like you know this is meant for kids like what do I say and Karen's like kids love that stuff like don't get too graphically detailed but don't be afraid to talk about what like what it is Anne knew what it was right and in order to understand exactly how dramatic and over the top Anne is being in that moment the reader has to have the same amount of information that Anne does so it's actually so important that you're making those connections right right yes what you're saying made me think about that instance because it it is sort of like the salacious older sister kind of like hey this is what drawn and quartering is I don't know by the way (laughs) let me give you the behind the scenes yeah Well, I have to tell you a funny story, Katie. As I said, this was the edition of Anne that my uh, 10-year-old read. And a few weeks ago, as we were driving home from school, she was asking me why I thought Moody Spurgeon McPherson had such a (laughs) distinctive name. And I didn't know. And I guess I had never really thought about it except in passing. But Hmm. I said, well, I don't know, maybe Moody is like a nickname or something that had taken on a life of its own or I don't know. And literally not an hour later, she yells from her room, I know why his name is Moody. (laughs) And then she comes right running out and she was so pleased to share with me your annotation on the origin of Moody's name. And it was something (laughs) I didn't know. So do you want to share with our listeners why Moody has such a curious name? Yeah. So his name, his full name is Moody Spurgeon McPherson. And there's a particular moment when I explain it in the book, because Rachel Lind says something about him, like he couldn't be anything other than a preacher. And it's because his name is a combination of two very famous 19th century preachers and evangelists. One is Dwight L. Moody and the other was Charles Spurgeon. They're both pretty well known in some Christian circles today. Like I think there's a Moody Bible College. There's a Moody Publishing House, which is like they publish Christian books. And Charles L. Spurgeon, like I see people sharing Charles Spurgeon quotes all the time on Instagram. So like they're still fairly well known, but they were very famous in the 19th century. So less well known now. And I would never expect probably most people to to understand those references. Yeah, they were very famous 19th century preachers. And so obviously because of that, he was very intentionally named. Like his parents knew who they were, named him that, and his life was set before him. (laughs) He had no choice. (laughs) And it's interesting because since I didn't know that, all of a sudden that line became clear to me that I had never understood because I know that line where she says with a name like that, he couldn't be anything other than a minister. Mm -hmm. And I always thought maybe it had to do with the fact that it was a weird name. Like if you give your kid a weird (laughs) name, like all he can be is a minister. That was sort of when I was a child, I figured out that was the story I told myself about why Mrs. Lind says that. So all of a sudden realizing it's actually kind of the opposite that he was deliberately named so he would grow up to be a minister. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very specifically and intentionally named. I feel like the contemporary equivalent would be something like um, a 
modern parent naming their kid Rihanna Beyonce. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely headed to being a pop star. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Yes. <laughs> so why do you think that Anne is still relevant to the modern kid? I mean, this goes back to where I say like people are always people. And in the same vein, teenagers and kids are will always be teenagers. Teenagers will always be teenagers. And Anne, oh boy, is Anne ever a teenager, right? She's dramatic and angsty and emotional. And I think most teenagers can relate to that. Even beyond that, like she wants to do the right thing, but she's always making mistakes, either unintentional mistakes or because she has a raging temper and she can carry around a grudge like nobody's business. She's so human. And I think we can all relate to that. I also think adolescents from time immemorial are searching for their place in the world. They're coming into their own. They're figuring out who they are, who they want to be, what they believe, where they belong. That is the book, Anne of Green Gables, in a nutshell. It is a classic buildings Roman in that sense. And teenagers will forever be able to relate to a coming-of-age story because they are also in the process of coming-of-age. So even if the particular experience of growing up in late 19th century, small-town Avonlea, Prince Edward Island, even though that is far removed from their experience, the internal struggle of being a teenager and coming into your own will always resonate. I think you're exactly right with that. And Anne is such a deliciously open and evocatively like emotional kid that you are right there with her, right? You might not want puff sleeves, but every kid has like their fashionable thing that they want that their parents say they yes. can't have. Like that is a totally universal experience. Yes. So anyway, well, we very much loved and appreciated your guys's version of Anne of Green Gables and have to know whether or not there are any other classics that you would like to annotate in a similar way. So we hope that we have a slew of classics at Owl's Nest and whether or not I write them or not. I mean, I would love to. Basically, since I finished Anne, I've been thinking, well, what classic would I want to work on next? And for me, part of the appeal is that I want to choose a story that means something to me or one that I loved growing up. And that kind of narrows it down. Naturally, I wouldn't choose one that I'd never read or one that mm -hmm. I didn't like or didn't connect with. So another one that has really been calling to me is The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. That was a favorite growing up. I mean, I, I can't say that I loved it as much as I loved Anne. I haven't read it as often as I've read Anne. But because of that, the challenge will be that I know next to nothing about Frances Hodgson Burnett. Like, I, I don't really know anything about her. Whereas I already had a working knowledge of Ella Montgomery before I started the Anne project. It was so much easier and it required a lot less research to do Anne than it will for almost any other classic I work on in the future. That will be a challenge. Like I'd already read a biography. I'd read a middle grade biography of Ella Montgomery. I also had read at least partially the biography. Uh, what is it called? Wings. I can't remember the name of it, but it's like, it's sort of the biography of Ella Montgomery that people talk about a lot as being sort of mm -hmm. the best. If I do The Secret Garden, <laughs> I will need to like actually read a full biography of of Frances Hodgson Burnett before I even get started. So it's it's daunting. Even if I don't get around to that in the near future, I know that next year we're releasing A Christmas Carol, but that will be the work of another editor, not me. Oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah, yeah, it will be fun. I think it's going to be great. 
And I think Kelly and I will be first in line to buy an annotated secret garden. Yes. Both of us have talked about Mary Lennox as a kindred spirit to Anne and that the secret garden explores some similar themes to Anne. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Reagan and I had previously talked in our last episode, which is about graphic novel adaptations of Anne, that there are also many graphic novel adaptations of The Secret Garden, right? There's a lot of crossover between women, probably women our age, (laughs) 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 who loved Anne just as much as they love Mary Lennox, so... I think that's really interesting. It doesn't surprise me because even subconsciously we must, our type, our our kindred spirits out there must like subconsciously be drawn to these two stories. I know. And now I want to hear from our kindred spirit listeners, whether they are also huge fans of the secret garden that might give us some direction for our next season as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Katie, what is your favorite Anne moment from Anne of Green Gables? Or if you want to do the whole series, go for it. Yes. I I have to do the whole series because I think my favorite, (laughs) I think my favorite moment in the whole series will be forever Gilbert's proposal to Anne. My friends and I had that entire scene memorized and we would repeat it to each other constantly. So that scene, that moment in Anne has a very nostalgic hold on me, apart from being romantic. And it's partly romantic because you have to wait until the third book for it to happen. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And that... (laughs) That that is so wonderfully nerdy that you guys had it all memorized. <laughs> I couldn't repeat it to you now, but you know, 25 years ago or whatever. Yep. And well, and I think you're right though. It is such a long time in coming, right? But it is so worth the wait. Mm-hmm. I love it when Anne says, I don't want sunbursts or marble halls. I just want you. Just best. The best. Oh so romantic like it's just so romantic and because the book and the 1985 miniseries are so like meshed together in my mind Mm -hmm. deeply connected I can't hear those words without hearing Megan Follows saying those words yes yes (laughs) yeah I know it's one of my favorite moments as well I even referenced it in my wedding vows (gasps) that's amazing I wish that I had thought of that like that's amazing I can't speak for you but I know for me in terms of modeling the romantic journey and this romance with someone who is such a friend and someone Mm -hmm. who sees her in all of her flaws and loves her so deeply was just such a amazing romantic model for me that that's that was always something like that's what I wanted right that's that's what I wanted and I think it is such a wonderful romance because they started out as friends and I do think it's a great example for kids there's so much in YA now there's so much insta love there and there's also so many toxic relationships that are sort of idealized and idolized and I think let's hold up Anne and Gilbert as a model because (laughs) their romance was so beautiful well and so Reagan and I had actually talked about this a little bit in a previous episode and the more I think about it the more true I am convinced that it is which is that if someone like Anne and Gilbert if a relationship like that is sort of the relationship that you were reading about and sort of like formed an attachment to or whatever in, during these very formative early years if that becomes your gold standard for a relationship like you are setting yourself up for a happy marriage for happy relationships for long-term <laughs> you know partnership in like a really wonderful way yes if we're going to idolize any couple let it be Anne and Gilbert for sure <laughs> yes absolutely. 100%. because the respect right they start I mean they start as 
I mean, they start as rivals, especially in this first book, right? And the, and because of that, a little bit one sided. I mean, rival, yeah, that's rival, true. But yeah. like Anne, Anne, Anne is the only one that really dis- right. <laughs> dislikes <laughs> him. Anne's carrying ninety five percent of the rivalry. <laughs> yes, yes. Gilbert's sort of just like, well, if this is what you want to do, I guess we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, if you want to have like a spelling bee together, sure. <laughs> He's like, as long as we can hang out, I don't really care. <laughs> But it's built on this foundation of like intense respect for each other. Yeah. Right. And then friendship growing out of that and then love from that. It's just the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Okay. To pivot a little bit, we've been wanting to have this discussion for a while. And our last episode of our first season seems the time to do it. So I want to know how both of you rank all eight of the Anne books. For our purposes, we leave out the short story collections. Oh, impossible to rank. Yeah. No, I'm going to force you to do it. Force you to do it. Rank them. Make choices. Hard choices, Kelly. Kelly, you go first. <laughs> okay. 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 I'll, I will go first. I'm not going to rank them. I'll do them in tiers. Okay. All right. I'll do like top tier, middle tier, game. bottom tier. All right. <laughs> in my bottom tier. <laughs> I feel like it's like a, some sort of like sports drafting analogy. <laughs> right. In my bottom tier, my last seeds. <laughs> That for me are going to be Rainbow Valley and Anne of Ingleside, which I do enjoy these books. Okay. I think they're very cute and funny. I am just not as interested in Anne's kids and, you know, sort of the goings on in and around Glen St. Mary as I am in Anne's story and Avonlea. I would say my middle tier are Anne of Avonlea and Anne of Windy Poplars, because I do really love seeing Anne thrive in her career and becoming a successful educator, but I don't really care about any of the small town drama. Don't care about the Pringles. Not at all. Whatever's going on with them, not interesting to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> they weren't part of the original Avonlea cast of characters, so that I just, just... No, I don't care. <laughs> I don't I don't need Pies 2.0 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So what top tier for me are going to be the books that have the most emotional resonance. And of course, for my sweet, soft heart, the most romance. So of course, that would be Anne of Green Gables, Anne of the Island, Anne's House of Dreams, and Rilla of Ingleside. Those are the four books that I've reread the most often. Those are the paperbacks with the covers I've had to tape back together and the dog-eared pages and the crispy edges from where they got dropped in the bathtub. And those four really all reflect back the kinds of books I still enjoy reading most. Strong, memorable heroines at a turning point in her life with romance, humor, and pathos. I love that. That is really well thought out. I find this question so hard. For the most part, I really agree with with your outcome. It's been years since I've read some of the later books in the series. And some of the books I've only read once in my life. I haven't returned. Like, I don't think I've read Rainbow Valley. I don't think I've read some of those books with her kids since I was a kid myself. I don't think Mm. I've read those in a long time. I've wanted to, for years, do a reread of the entire series. But I have not done that yet. And I'm I'm feeling a little inspired right now. (laughs) Maybe maybe I should make this. Go back to them. They're really cute and funny. But they don't quite, for me, carry the same emotional weight as some of the more Anne-focused books. Yes. So I have a much easier time naming my top, my very top ones, and my very least favorite. And I will tell you right now, my very least favorite one is Anne of Windy Poplars. I, <laughs> I hated so that book. I hated that book when I was a kid, and I hate it today. I just do not like it, and I feel like I can tell how much Maud disliked writing it. I feel oh. like... <laughs> That's fair, but we can fight about it when I get to my part. We can fight about it. <laughs> 
I just, I, and here's the thing though. I also haven't read that, reread that one in a really long time. All of my choices can be rearranged at any moment. <laughs> I reserve the right to rearrange exactly. these at no, any no. moment. <laughs> depending on your mood, depending on what you want to read that day. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. No, no, no. You understand yeah. we're not, this, this isn't a binding contract. Yeah. Strong, <laughs> okay, good, strong good. opinions loosely held. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. So I think my, and I'm already, like I gave you guys this list earlier and I'm already rearranging it. <laughs> because I can tell you my top four for sure are Anne of Green Gables, Anne of the Island, Anne's House of Dreams, and Rilla of Ingleside. I'm switching Rilla and Anne of Avonlea. Mm-hmm. So um, Rilla is great. It is a great book. It is great. And you kind of hold it on its own because it's like its own separate story. Yeah. 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 It, it feels different from Anne, even though it's still part of the collection. So Anne of Green Gables, Anne of the Island, Anne's House of Dreams, Rilla of Ingleside. And then these last ones could be rearranged. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Anne of Avonlea, Anne of Ingleside, Rainbow Valley, and Anne of Windy Poplars. But Anne of Windy Poplars is at eight. So. Mm, okay. All right. So for me, it's no contest that my least favorite is Anne of Ingleside. So for listeners, if you guys don't know this, Anne of Ingleside and Anne of Windy Poplars were added much later to the Anne lineup. They right. were not written in chronological order. I think there was a lot of like pressure for Maud to fill in more. And so I do think that you can see some of that in Anne of Ingleside as well. So Anne of Ingleside comes chronologically it comes after Anne's House of Dreams, but she didn't write it till well after she's finished all of the rest of them. And yeah, that one's my least favorite. I just think that the kids are not old enough to be interesting and Anne isn't as interesting as she is in so many of the other books. And it just, it didn't emotionally resonate for me very much at all. And then I've got a surprise for the bottom, which is Anne of Avonlea. It's not one of my favorites. Yeah, you dislike Anne of Avonlea more than anyone else I know. Tell me why. Is it because of Davy and Dora? It's because of Davy. Yes. Yeah. It's because of Davy. I I don't know whether she felt like, okay, now we need a child to get into mischief now that Anne is grown. And, but she didn't do a great job. Like Mm -hmm. Davy's just the worst. (laughs) Davy's just the worst. (laughs) Avonlea, Anne of Avonlea is down at the bottom. Sixth place goes to Rainbow Valley, which I don't dislike I I liked it when I was a kid I just don't love it as much like it didn't stick with me emotionally like I didn't feel like I carried anything away from that surprisingly Anne's House of Dreams and Anne of Windy Poplars I can kind of flip-flop around in fourth and fifth place I have a weird soft spot for Anne of Windy Poplars I totally understand why people don't care for it because it's kind of like a bunch of short story collections bound up loosely around Anne's time as a teacher. But I don't know. There was something about it. Maybe it was the age that I read it that it kind of stuck with me. Or maybe it's this little thread of her ongoing romance with Gilbert that is settled, but as they're not married yet. But I have a real soft spot for Anne of Windy Poplars. I think I would have liked Anne of Windy Poplars so much more if we got letters from Gilbert back. back. To Anne. <gasps> yes. Oh, those would be so good. Why didn't she do that? <laughs> I know that is such a stupid reason to dislike the book, but that's no. why I dislike the book. It's all from Anne's perspective. We never hear back from Gilbert. It feels just so one-sided to me. So that's I my- need to know what he's doing off in medical school. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Or, or maybe a few love letters thrown in there. I mean, come on. Well, Reagan and I have joked about the fade to black quality in some of those letters in Anne of Wendy Poplar's. She'll be talking about whatever's going on in her life with the school or talking about, you know, Marilla back in Avonlea or whatever, you know, is going on. And then she'll be like, and now the portion of the letter that's just for you, my love. And I'm always <laughs> like, this is the portion I want to read. Yes. yes. I think all of that combined is why I feel bitter about it. <laughs> And it was bubblers. a tease. It was a tease of a book. It just didn't give you enough. That's yes, fair. Exactly. That's fair. All right. And then my top three are very clearly Rilla of Ingleside, Anne of the Island. And Anne of the Island is definitely the book besides the original that I keep on returning to the most. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about Anne's experience at college and just watching her get to be like a young woman on her own in this space that I don't think a lot of women at the time got to do this space between living at home and being married, that she really gets this real opportunity to be a young woman on her own. I really love that one. She has this wonderful experience with her friends, with Philippa and Stella and who else? I Priscilla. Priscilla where they get to share a house together. Mm -hmm. You get this sort of moment of young womanhood where they are not wives and mothers yet, Mm -hmm. you know, but they're not children living with their parents anymore. It's so contemporary. And that experience was not available to that many women at that time. Yeah. It wasn't even really available to Maude. I mean, mean, that's what I think is so interesting about Anne of Green Gables and, and actually almost all of the books that she wrote. I feel like she was working out her own childhood traumas in her literature it's wish fulfillment for her. It's yes. always wish mm-hmm. fulfillment. Yeah. And then of course, the original is still my favorite because that's the foundation. That's the reason why we care about Anne mm-hmm. in all of these later stages of her life is mm-hmm. because we are so invested in her from the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved growing up. I think one of the reasons I loved Anne of Green Gables, the entire series as a kid, is because I always wanted to know what came after the end of a book. Yes. I what happens next? What happens next? I always wanted to follow characters more. So yeah, I loved Anne of Green Gables because it told her whole life. Okay, Katie, do you have another favorite Ella Montgomery book? I have a lot easier time answering this than ranking the Anne of Green Gables books <laughs> because fair. I have a very, very clear winner. My other favorite Ella Montgomery book is easily The Blue Castle. Ugh. Easily. Like far and away, my favorite Ella Montgomery book apart from Anne of Green Gables. I love it so much. It is so underappreciated. Unless you're an Ella Montgomery fan, I feel like you don't know about that book or have not read that book and it's so delightful it's such a sweet romance but also there's Mm -hmm. there's so much depth to it I just I love it okay so hard agree there for me the blue castle is far and away my favorite non-Anne Montgomery book and it's one of the few she wrote specifically for adult audiences Mm -hmm. rather than a younger audience the main character Valancey has the most amazing character growth Mm-hmm. And it's a love story, but it's mostly a love story about finding yourself. Mm-hmm. I foresee us in the future spending several episodes exploring the Blue Castle together. Yeah. So you can come back and talk to us again if you want to Please. talk about the Blue Castle. Yes, I would love to do that. I would absolutely love to do that. Yeah. A close second is the story girl, because I love all the beautifully written mini stories woven throughout that book. It's about a group of kids as well, sort of similar to Rainbow Valley. I think this group of kids works better than Mm -hmm. the Rainbow Valley crew. 
The Story Girl is one that I have not read. It's one of the few Ella Montgomery books that I've never read. So oh. I oh, it's I so charming. I know, I know, I need to read it because I've actually been told like of her other books, I would probably really enjoy it. I really enjoy the Emily series, but I don't love it nearly as much as Anne. You're either an Emily fan or you're an Anne fan, and oh, yeah. I am by far yeah. an Anne fan. I just cannot <laughs> put myself in the Emily camp. There's just Okay, well, so to go back, though, to The Blue Castle, because I have yes, to win yes. as well. I love this book. Completely loved it. And I, this is one I didn't read as a kid when I was reading most of the other Ellen Montgomery books. I read it in adulthood. I read it because Reagan was so shocked I hadn't read it before that she gave me a copy. This is like maybe eight years ago. I am glad that I didn't read it contemporaneously to when I was reading the Anne series because I don't think I would have gotten it the same way I got it as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's so romantic. It's so subtle and gentle, much less sparky than the Anne books, but Mm -hmm. in just a really beautiful way. And that scene where she calls out her whole family is one of the most satisfying (laughs) things I've ever read. (laughs) If you, like me, are like a good girl and a people pleaser, you will love this moment. Mm-hmm. Also, Barney Snaith, amazing hero, terrible name. (laughs) Terrible name. Okay, seriously, Barney (laughs) Snaith, I want to know. Was Maude having a laugh with that or was it not as silly back then as it is now? Was like that her version of a bad boy name? Barney Snape? They're always talking about, oh, like so scandalous, such a disreputable name. I'm like, really? He sounds kind of like a clown. Yeah, Barney, that's just such a clownish name. It's really bad. It's really bad. It doesn't roll off the tongue. I mean, you could never go into a group and people talk about their favorite romantic heroes and you say Barney Snaith. Everyone would know you're absolutely joking. It's it's a ridiculous name, but it does make me want to look up. Was Barney ever like a popular? Right. Like, was that kind of a romantic name. I I can't. I can't believe it. I mean, maybe, but that's very hard for me to wrap my mind around. Then again, okay. We are all maybe a little bit too far down the Anne rabbit hole to even realize it. But Gilbert is not exactly the sexiest name out there. <laughs> no, but at least Gilbert Blythe like rolls Blythe. off the tongue a little yes. better. Yeah. And Blythe, Blythe is, is a really lovely last name. Like yeah. Snape. Yeah. Snape, really? <laughs> so that's true. Gilbert, like I would never name a child Gilbert. No, no, you really can't do that to a kid nowadays. No. (laughs) All right, Katie, tell us what other books from your childhood did you especially love and why? So I've already named The Secret Garden. I loved The Secret Garden. And if I were to name some other classics, I also really liked Heidi. I really have a thing for orphans. Pippi Longstocking. I Just the orphan trope really gets me every time. Yep. (laughs) So um, yeah, I, I really loved a good orphan story. But other favorites that weren't classics include Matilda. I would read Matilda in a day and then I would reread the whole thing the next day. I loved Matilda so much. A- another favorite, Walk Two Moons. I and I and I've reread Walk Walk Two Moons in the last few years and I I loved it just as much. It remains a favorite to this day. It holds up so well. It's so whimsical. The main character, Salamanca Hiddle, her dad, we don't know what happened with her mother. Her mother has disappeared. So she's living alone with her father and she goes on a road trip 
with her grandparents to go in search of her mother. And that's the premise of the book. It's a road trip story and you're basically spending the whole book with her and her grandparents and her grandparents are the cutest old couple in the entire world. I love them so much. It's just delightful. So that's another favorite. Some more that I haven't revisited in many years that were favorites when I was a kid are Island of the Blue Dolphins and Bridge to Terabithia. And those books are a lot sadder than I usually gravitate towards today. I don't really love books that just are so depressing, <laughs> but I loved a good sob while reading when I was a kid. So even if most of those books aren't totally sad, like all of those books have an element of bittersweetness, even, you know, Matilda has bittersweetness. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, Walk to Moons is bittersweet. And I still, my favorite, my favorite, favorite way for a book to end is bittersweet. Anne of Green Gables has the most bittersweet ending possible. I just love a bittersweet ending because it feels like life. It's like mm -hmm. there's so much happiness mixed in with the sadness. Yes. So most of my favorite books grapple on some level also with death, including Anne of Green Gables. To this day, almost all of my favorite books are bittersweet. Yeah. I think there's something about the middle school years when you really learn how to love a good cry. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Well, tell us a little bit about Owl's Nest Publishing and why you decided to start a publishing company. I'm going to try and say this fast because I could talk about this for an entire podcast episode, but I'll keep it brief. So a few years ago, my best friend Karen and I were having a discussion about the state of publishing today. And in so many ways, it's really broken. So we were lamenting that there were pockets of the population that really weren't being served well, particularly teenagers, particularly younger teenagers. So like the 13 to 15 age range, but also to a certain extent, middle grade readers. But YA, as it stands today, is it's really not written for teenagers. It's written for adults. It's especially written for adult women. And it depicts teenagers who are almost all of them adults themselves, or at least very close to adulthood. If you pick up a YA book and you are like, just read the description, almost all of them are 17 or 18 years old. So at the very least, they're acting like adults in teenage bodies. And I think that's done very intentionally because they want to put these teenagers in very adult situations because it's adults reading the books. And it's not that teenagers aren't reading the books. They are, you know, teenagers still read YA. I'm sure it's very titillating for them. So we knew that there were plenty of authors who were writing great books that would never be published by the big five because they mm. weren't, they didn't fit the criteria. They had a 15 year old protagonist or even a 16 year old protagonist or I mean, any number of other, other things. The those books still deserve to be told and they deserve a place at the table and plenty of readers who are looking for books that reflect yeah. their own awkward teenage experience. Like if you read a lot of YA books, all the boys are Lotharios. I don't know a 15, 16, 17 year old boy who is, is that like, smooth. Yeah. Is that smooth? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we want teen books to reflect teenagers in all of their awkward, wonderful teenageness. <laughs> so, so anyway, so Karen has been a published author for close to 15 years now and has a ton of industry knowledge. And although I'd never written a book before Anne, I, although I had written just in general, mm -hmm. I had a lot of knowledge from reviewing books for many years and being sort of on the publicity side of book, building relationships with publishers. So seeing this need and having this, this combined sort of industry 
knowledge and experience, we decided that we would just go ahead and start a publishing house that filled this gap that we see in the industry. So we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We just want to offer another option, put ourselves in the mix. It's been amazing and really feels like a vocational calling for us, like where our passions and our experience meet, like it feels vocational. So we just marked our first year of business and, and I love it. It's been amazing. Congratulations. Oh, I'm really glad that you are doing this work. You know, this is interestingly a conversation that Reagan and I have had with each other quite a bit as well, noticing a lot of the same thing that you're talking about, you know, and I'm not a parent, but I am a reader and I've noticed how much of what is now called YA does feel really geared toward not just adults, but like, as you very specifically point out, adult women. This stuff feels like it's being written for me, which is bananas. I'm 40, right? Right. And if you really think about that, there's something kind of screwy about that when you know that you're a 40-year-old woman, because I'm turning 40 this year, and you're reading about a 17-year-old. I'm completely with you. So so I've had an Owl Crate. um, That's one of those monthly Mm -hmm. like book box subscription companies. Mm -hmm. I've had a subscription to Owl Crate for a couple of years. I love them because they send cute bookish swag. I love special editions. I like having pretty bookshelves. So it's like a good fit for me as far as that is concerned. But this is a book subscription box that's geared toward young adults. Um, They send YA books and all of the books they send me are like exactly what you're talking about. Like adults in teenage bodies, super sexy, confident heroes, right? Who are supposed to be 18 year old boys, which is (laughs) absurd. You know, kids (laughs) Kids in these situations where they are saving the world or saving the kingdom or saving the, saving the human race or whatever it is, like these really big, like high stakes, political intrigue, all of this. And it's like, there's no- Where are the adults? Oh yeah, Who right. The, the adults are just gone, right? Just They're like either gone or incompetent. For some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as fun as they are, and you're right, I'm sure the young, the young adult readers who are reading it, you know, do find them really fascinating and I'm sure very exciting and dramatic, but there is nothing teen- reflected in these books yeah and I don't know if it's the twilight phenomenon that opened the door for publishing to realize that adults and (laughs) particularly had a hunger for a lot of those stories I Mm -hmm. think that that really seemed like that's where that shift started to happen that is absolutely where it started it was twilight and they found that the market was all of these adult women buying and reading the books and telling yeah and hungering for these weird like talk about a weird twisted romance whatever we could we could debunk that like this is the opposite of what you want to look for (laughs) in a healthy relationship uh so do everything opposite right this is a what not to do (laughs) in a romance for sure And I really see that kind of in the fantasy genre as well, that it seems like when something is marketed as a YA fantasy, it has a broader appeal and reach than traditional genre fantasy, even though I think that's just a marketing difference. Like a lot of those YA fantasy books could easily just be genre fantasy. Mm -hmm. And it's almost not even the age of the characters. There's plenty of genre fantasy in which it's a young hero coming into their own. Mm Mm-hmm. But it did feel it does feel like there's this real jump between what I would have thought of as YA when I was younger to what is being offered now that just kicked it up an age and sophistication notch that I think mm-hmm. leaves something behind. And that is exactly why we wanted to start Owl's Nest to sort of fill in that gap that we see. Traditional publishing is doing what they do very well. <laughs> right. Well, they um, found something that worked, right? They, so let's it do more makes of that. a big moneymaker, right? right. Like, yeah. they found, because 
adult women will have the money and will yes. spend the money on books. And right. That's where more where the money is, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the people that are have a lot more disposable income mm-hmm. than teenagers. Mm-hmm. Right. I will buy a $30 hardcover on pub day of the third in a series that I'm super invested in, mm-hmm. you know, versus like teenage me who would have been waiting for that at the library to finally come exactly. up. <laughs> I love that idea of bringing more books to readers that hit that sweet spot of interesting, complex, well-written, but reflecting teen and middle grade content, especially I think in the realistic fiction range. I think we've got a real wealth of great fantasy that's out there for kids and teens, but I'm wondering how that looks like in the realistic fiction realm. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's a question from us is, do you have any good recommendations for readers who love Anne or books that might hit that sweet spot? for teens or younger readers, middle grade readers? When I was thinking about this question earlier, I was really thinking more middle grade because middle grade, I I tend to like reading middle grade more than YA. I wasn't an angsty teenager. So reading about angsty teenagers sometimes annoys me. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I tend to gravitate towards middle grade because I feel like middle grade, you get, you get these sort of deep, themes that are universal to being a human, but they're always talked about in a really digestible way. And and I love that. So here are some books that sort of, I would say, share the spirit of Anne in one way or another. One of my favorite modern middle grade novels is The Penderwicks. It was written some time ago now, probably 15 years ago, maybe, maybe even more. And it's the story of five sisters over the course of one delightful summer holiday. And it's just about their adventures over the course of one summer. And it's just so wonderful. And it's also a great read aloud. So just putting that, put that one in your back pocket. It's wonderful. Another one that I often think about, and it's a little darker than Anne, I would say. It's called The War That Saved My Life. And it's about a little girl who flees London during the Blitz. She has a clubbed foot and her mother is very abusive. So during the Blitz, the main character ends up leaving London, kind of running away. And she finds a home with a reluctant spinster. So Ada is a lot more somber and traumatized by her past than Anne. She's a little bit maybe more like Mary Lennox, actually, in that Mm -hmm. respect. But the thread that I see common with Anne is the softening relationship between her and her sort of surrogate mother, Susan. Oh my gosh, it's just wonderful. And it's a duology. So there's a follow-up book called The War I Finally Won. It's equally amazing and just continues their relationship. There's more resolution in the second book than in the first. So then the third one I wanted to mention is called Until Tomorrow, Mr. Marsworth. It is delightful. It's an epistolary novel, which turns some people off. But if you don't like epistolary novels, you should give this one a chance. If for any listeners out there who don't know what what an epistolary novel means, it's a novel written in letters. It's about a a little girl named Rini Kelly. It takes place during the Vietnam War. And she is living with her grandparents one summer. She gets a paper route and she starts writing letters to this really cranky recluse named Mr. Marsworth. The whole point of the book is she's trying to keep her brother from getting drafted into the Vietnam War. And so she starts this pen pal relationship with Mr. Marsworth. And it is, oh my gosh, it's so delightful. And this probably stems from my love of Anne, but I love a 
book with a friendship between an older character and a younger character, especially if the older character is grumpy and cantankerous in some way. And this book does that perfectly. So that is also like the commonality I see between Anne and Until Tomorrow, Mr. Marsworth. In all of those three books, the characters are either effectively orphaned or have only one living parent which may feel like an odd thing to mention, but I do think (laughs) (laughs) that often informs how these characters interact with the world or deal with their circumstances. And that's certainly the case for Anne and all the characters in these books. Okay, I am having the best time with this whole conversation and talking to Katie about Owl's Nest and about her annotated Anne. This has really been such a pleasure, but we are going to start to wind this podcast episode down (laughs) Katie (laughs) so Katie we always end with an inspired by Anne section where we recommend things that we like that remind us of Anne in some way what would you recommend to our listeners so I thought about this long and hard (laughs) and I wasn't sure what to answer at first but I always come back to Anne Shirley loves beautiful things yes yes and she also loves frivolous things yes and Yes. Maybe a year ago, I saw Jenna Fisher, who plays Pam from The Office, which is my comfort show. So I follow Jenna Fisher on Instagram, and I listen to Office Ladies podcasts and everything. And I saw Jenna Fisher pour coffee into the most beautiful coffee mug I'd ever seen in my life. It's so pretty. And I knew I must have it in the same way that Anne knew she must have a dress with puffed sleeves. Yes. It was so beautiful. It has real gold painted onto some of the leaves. It's like pictures of little oranges. It's it's handmade and the couple who makes them. It's so beautiful. R&D Pottery, they're on Instagram and they only drop like a new batch of their pottery every few months. And they sell out so quickly that they'll say, okay, we're going to drop our pottery at 8 p.m. on such and such a day. They sell so quickly that you literally have to sit online with the product that you want right in front of you, ready to click it into your cart. Because if you, like, they'll sell out within 10 seconds. So I had to do this. I had to try a few times (laughs) to do it, to get it. You earned that mug. You earned it. I earned that mug. And they're also a splurge. They're like $60 or something. They're they're expensive. I won't let anyone else in my house touch yeah, that mug. This is, this is mom's mug. No <laughs> one else is allowed to touch. Yeah. <laughs> no one can touch it because if it breaks, well, I'll get another one. But I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> don't lie. Don't lie. <laughs> but I love it so much. And I love drinking my tea from it every morning. I look forward to it. It is the best part of my day. And I feel very much like Anne Shirley when she got her puff sleeves from Matthew every time I drink from it. I love it. So for my inspired by this episode, I'm going to share a book recommendation that was inspired by all three of us absolutely fangirling out over the Blue Castle. Truly the best book. So I just read a book called The Bell of Belgrave Square by Mimi Matthews, and it is partially an homage to the Blue Castle. So The Bell of Belgrave Square is sort of like a Blue Castle meets Beauty and the Beast. It's set in the Regency, and there's lots of horses. (laughs) There is one plot twist that is lifted directly from the Blue Castle, and when I spotted it, I actually screamed. (laughs) I was so just so delighted by it. So Mimi Matthews is writing this absolutely splendid series right now called The Bells of London, and it's about four young women in Regency-era London who are all avid horsewomen 
who are all trying to make their own way in a world with really limited options for women. You see a lot of the themes we were talking about in this podcast, in this same book series. And although the books are Regency romances, they are super modern feeling with really diverse characters and themes about empowerment and self-discovery. I've enjoyed both of the books in the series so far. If you are like loving Bridgerton, you're also going to really like these. And I will say that for those of you who might prefer a romance with a little less sex on the page, these are all what you'd call like fade to black romances or clean romances. I mean, I for one do like some bedroom naughtiness in my romance novels, but I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. So Mimi Matthews, The Bell of Belgrave Square. All right. Well, I also have a book recommendation today. So there's a new book. It's just out. It's called The Grace of Wild Things by Heather Fawcett. And it is a middle grade fantasy inspired by Anne of Green Gables. You guys, it is gorgeous. I literally just finished it today. The writing is beautiful and lyrical. It's very inspired by Anne, but if you've never read Anne, you will still love it. You can see like the whiffs of Anne. The main character, Grace, is an orphan who is unloved and unwanted, and she seeks out the local witch to apprentice herself and learn how to channel the magic in her that sets her apart from ordinary children. And there are definitely moments that are complete homages to Anne. There's a slate smashing moment, for instance. Ah! But a lot of it is also its own story. It's loosely inspired by Anne as a character and her relationship with Marilla, but they're not trying to do a direct like one-to-one story. The language is lovely. Grace loves poetry and she loves language and she has a crow familiar who loves poetry about birds. Crow familiar. I know. I know it is my book and it's a beautiful read. And in fact, I have a short quote to read for you guys because I think the two of you will love it. So she's talking to the witch who is unnamed. The witch has called her an impossible child. And she says, it's wonderful though to be impossible, isn't it? Mrs. Spencer always said that magic is impossible. You know what I think sometimes? How nobody sees the world the same way as anyone else. Some people look at a beautiful day and see it as a little bit more green than other people do. Some people see the way the sunlight moves along the ripples in a stream as if it's dancing, while others just see the shadows along the bank and think about all the things that might be hiding in them. I think impossible is like that. It's different for everybody. Maybe for Mrs. Spencer, magic is impossible and always will be. But that doesn't mean it isn't real or that other people can't see it. And I'd rather be impossible to someone like Mrs. Spencer. Wouldn't you? You guys, run right out and get this book. The language in it is gorgeous. It's beautifully done. I am speechless. How have I not ever... It just came out. I'd seen it kind of pop up on Instagram. And when I saw that it was loosely inspired by Anne, I got it. I didn't know how good it was going to be. It reminds me a little bit of like if you crossed Anne of Green Gables with the girl who drank the moon. Say no more. Oh Oh my gosh, say no more. Oh my gosh, say no more. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) Yes, seriously, it is. It's absolutely beautiful. I can't wait to have this one, Reagan. Me too. Oh my gosh. I'm having a really hard time like just not clicking purchase right now, like while we're on the podcast. Oh my gosh. You definitely can. It's probably going to be worth it to own because I honestly think this is going to be a new classic. The Girl Who Drank the Moon is one of my all-time favorite middle grade books. So it's called The Grace of Wild Things by Heather Fawcett. Oh, Reagan, what a great wreck. I'm really yes. excited for that Thank one, too. You. I am so excited. And I love that quote. Uh, isn't that beautiful? Yeah, that quote's amazing. And it, you can see the connection to Anne in that quote, Yes, too. yes, right? There's a lot of things that Grace says 
that are not direct and quotes. Like that's where you really see that inspired by that mm-hmm. Anne would think yeah. this way. Mm-hmm. If magic were a thing in Anne's world, this might be the way that she talks about it, right? Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else we want to talk about before we like kind of close up? Well, listen, we can close the episode and keep talking. Okay. (laughs) So then if that's the case, well, that is all for this episode, Kindred Spirits. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie. It was such a pleasure. I know that this podcast ran so long because we had so much fun talking, (laughs) but I loved every single second. (laughs) So we're definitely going to come back and talk with us when we talk about the Blue Castle, right? Yes, Yes, I absolutely am. Please, 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 please. Yes. Oh, good. (laughs) Gosh, yeah. Thank you so much again. And everyone should check out the Owl's Nest podcast to learn more about middle grade and teen books and a behind the scenes look at an independent publisher. Go to the Owl's Nest website for updates on what they're doing over there and to get updates about what books are coming next. And if you want to hear more from Katie, please check her out across all the platforms at Life Between Words. And thank you, Kindred Spirits, for sticking with us through our very first season. We've loved developing this podcast together and can't wait for you to hear what we do with season two. We'll take a break for a few weeks, not that long, and then we'll be back with the books about Anne's young adulthood and a more wide-ranging exploration on the way young womanhood is represented in literature. Share your thoughts and ideas for what we should talk about on our Instagram, kindredspirits.bookclub, or on Twitter at KSBC Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Bye, Kindred Spirits. 